Game Study Study Buddies, episode 28. I'm Cameron. I'm Michael. And uh, today we're talking about gamer theory. Beep boop. Beep beep deep. <laughs> Robot. Robot voice. Mm-hmm. Um, by uh, McKinsey Work. Oh, published in 2007. From mm-hmm. Harvard University Press, not really a press that we associate with game studies. No, that's really interesting, I thought. Because, uh, yeah, I don't think of many game studies books coming out of there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think occasionally they come out, you know, in, in the general mix of stuff. But as far as I know, someone can correct me or I can I can correct myself later. But I don't, you know, I don't think they've ever even had a game studies, you know, kind of, uh, I, I'm going to say, I was going to say vertical. But that's not the right word, right? Uh, series <laughs> in the press. Um, and I'm not actually quite sure if this is like part of a series or not. Did you know? Um, I didn't note it when I was doing show notes. And it's not in the front matter of the book or anything. Oh, okay. Uh, Michael, why are we reading this book? Um, I mean, because we wanted to. Uh, mm-hmm. It, why do we read anything? For, why do we make this podcast is the better question. Um, but uh, mm-hmm. no, I guess, you know, we... Well, that's why I'm guiding you toward, because there's a historical reason <laughs> why this podcast exists and why we're reading this book. Kinda. Well, I wouldn't know if you would if you would count that in your personal history of this podcast in the way that I would. But uh, yeah, so gamer theory. Um, first of all, this is, this is a bit more... Uh, in in the we we've talked about this on previous episodes uh we try to uh diversify what we're doing uh we we will move between books that are kind of more canonical to the discipline to books that are uh maybe uh underread or like lesser known that but that are still kind of clearly within the discipline and then sometimes uh we we try to go kind of out of left field and find something that normal like game studies academic game studies in a department wouldn't consider uh, a, a a sort of canonical text and try to make an argument for it uh being a part of some sort of game studies curriculum uh so this book first of all is i think it leans a little bit more toward like the canonical um i i mean mckinsey wark is a, a a person in game studies you will you will find her cited uh uh on on games she has written other work on games and on uh, new and digital media broadly uh so we have that uh on on the one hand right we wanted to go a little bit more toward uh the discipline in this episode uh but also good lord uh five years ago um you and i recorded a very short podcast for a class that I was teaching for a day when I had to miss lecture. And that was sort of my idea. I was teaching online. I think it was the first time. No, it wasn't the first time I was teaching online. I think it was like the second or third time. I've been teaching online for a while. Before it was cool. Before the horrific circumstances of the world made made like a whole bunch of people do it, uh, I was out there, I guess, doing it of my own choice. Um, but uh, the... The way that I was running this class uh, is there was a a difficult essay that the students had to read in kind of the middle. Um, It was an intro class, and the way that I had run this class previously is uh, I would give them something a a little more theory-heavy in the middle of the class to kind of give them a really dense piece of academic writing to work through. And this semester, I had decided I was going to do the first chapter of this book. 
Um, and the sort of end result of this just, uh, actually, this might help the, the listener as well, right? Um, the end result of this kind of unit of the course was that students would have to, first of all, understand a, a pretty difficult piece of writing, um, you know, uh, and do some note-taking on it, um, some outlining, uh, but then use the ideas that they gleaned from that difficult piece to talk about uh, the themes or the resonances of a film that they had watched. And the films that I had my students watch for uh, this essay, uh, just, you know, to flag that, uh, were Snowpiercer and Wreck-It Ralph. So the entire time Cameron and I are going to be talking throughout this episode, uh, and if you have a question about something, just turn your mind to either Snowpiercer or Wreck-It Ralph and see if you can, if, if you can make uh, what we're talking about make sense within the context of those films. Uh, but anyway, I was going to miss a class, and I thought, I'm teaching online. You know, what, what, uh, a, a neat thing that I might be able to do here is just kind of do a sort of podcast lecture. And how could I do that? I need someone to talk with. Oh, gosh, who 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 at the last minute is going to talk with me for an hour on Skype? And I asked you and you agreed. And so we recorded an hour long podcast where we talked about uh, agony on the cave, the, the first chapter of this book, uh, and sort of gave an overview of it for my students. And that was on. Uh, October 15th, 2015, because I just pulled up the file and there is, uh, the date is still in the metadata and I, I listened to it and it was, it was weird. Some sort of protocast. Yeah, it, I, I, I've already said this to you, uh, when I was listening to it, but your affect is entirely the same. You are wholly unchanged, but, uh, I am in that show or in that little episode, I am like 1000 times more laid back than I have ever been on an episode of this show. It's like at some point in between 2015, actually, this makes a lot of sense between 2015. I wonder what could have happened. Yeah. Between 2015 <laughs> and 2018, when we started this show, something happened and I got a lot more keyed up. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh. And you, uh, you hadn't finished your degree then yet either, right? No, no, no. Like, I had like actually at done. that point just started dissertating. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So yeah, maybe a couple things. <laughs> hmm. Well, that, that's, um, yeah, I remember, you know, I, I, I don't even think I have the full file for that. So I, you know, I've never gone back and revisited it and I don't, and I also don't need it. So don't feel like <laughs> you need to give it to me, but I remember, um, uh, recording it and thinking, well, that was a good discussion, but I don't know if that's going to be helpful for anyone who is listening to it. <laughs> like, I had a good time doing it. You know, obviously, that's why we ended up doing the show. But uh, I don't what is it informative? I, I, I asked my students about it at the time um, and they they liked it. But also what I discovered in teaching and teaching work um, is that students like especially first year students are going to like anything that gives them kind of more of a handhold on this writing than than they would have had otherwise um mm -hmm. they appreciated basic because i was so it's it what we talked about in that episode of stuff we're going to talk about here which is uh the way that work discusses the history of capitalism um that was kind of more your angle and i discussed work as uh, her argument fits into kind of a broader history of ideas uh, because she's talking a lot about um plato uh in in especially the the first chapter uh so it 
we had kind of those two contextual angles that we discussed the the work through and mm -hmm. the students appreciated that even if i think uh you know the the essay is still quite difficult um um, if, if, if it's the first thing you're reading in your intro writing class in undergraduate. Whew. Well, you know what? Here's something that'll make you feel extremely old. Um, they are like in the workforce now. They're like out in the world. Yeah. Yep. Teaching will do that to you. Well, but I think that's a good jumping off point, actually, for talking about this book in a general sense, because I think that um, one of the big, well, it, it's interesting. So I've read a lot of McKinsey Works work. Oh, mm -hmm. and I didn't say this before. She's the professor of culture and media at the new school um, mm -hmm. or, or is not the <laughs> implying there's only one, but a professor of culture and media at the new school. Um, I didn't say that the biography at the top, but um, so I've read a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And she's written you know, a lot. Yeah, I think I've read everything other than the books on the Situationists. Her, her like um, dual duology, her two books on the, specifically on like the history of the Situationists and kind of what they were up to. Um, but I think I've read everything else up until uh, uh, even Sensoria. I actually just read. Uh, you know, um, uh, shout out to my my friend John. We we uh, also had like a little book club thing going on, and we just read um, Sensoria, Work's newest book that just came out uh, for that the other day, which is really interesting. If if you are interested in, this is just a, a short pitch. So Work has written two books that are basically like books of short summaries and kind of interrogations of the ideas of other thinkers. The first is called General Intellects, and the second is called Sensoria. This is such Urso a work books. thing. <laughs> it, it is. It absolutely is. Um, you might have seen her doing that on um, the uh, public seminar blog, mm -hmm. if, you, if you've seen that before. But it, so it's kind of a collection of those and and maybe with some additional context in it. But they're really helpful. They're really good for giving you kind of a lay of the land of what's going on in theory right now or what's going on in kind of cultural analysis. Um, just want to give a, a quick pitch for that. But I, I say all of that to say... That I think other than this book and Hacker Manifesto, which is before this book, I believe. Yes, it is. Yeah. Hacker um, Manifesto, I think, is like if I had I would not have heard of McKinsey work when I first read this book. Um, but like I had heard of a Hacker Manifesto. So that was mm -hmm. kind of that for, for me, my interior timeline is like, oh, OK, that's kind of a big one. And then we move into this more recent stuff. Yeah. Um, well, those two books, I, I think Gamer Theory and Hacker Manifesto are pretty, you know, famous slash infamous kind of depending on where you're at. Mm -hmm. um, but they are they are both kind of written in this style. Mm -hmm. And by that, I, I mean that they are highly gestural. They are pretty, they move really fast, mm -hmm. right? Like there is not a lot of time spent helping you learn the argument. Um, you know, I kind of wrote this as a general comment at the top of my notes, but the, this book is really written in such a way that you have to take a lot of it on faith. Mm -hmm. um, you just have to read it and be like, okay. All right, you know, it's very much, um, you know, I think in an adapted theory style, you know, there's a lot of wordplay. There's a lot of jokery going on here. Mm -hmm. It feels very much like someone who has read a lot of Derrida and read a lot of Deleuze and who was trying to work within that kind of framework, but even more gesturally, I would say. Uh, really, you know, if you've read any, uh, who, you know, a uh, person who showed up a lot, weirdly enough, 
showed up enough that probably we need to read the accursed chair at some point but um, <laughs> yeah I, I think it'd be a great book to do on here it's kind of a wild card book but um george bataille mm-hmm. this is written i think very similarly to george bataille yeah um and and i say all of that to say um that uh works other books are not written really in this way um, I think that her other books are a lot more clear and a lot more, quote-unquote, traditionally academic in the sense that they plot an argument, they're kind of chock-full of citations, um, and they help you trace a line of thought. This book provides us with a line of thought in that it gives us a bunch of key terms and kind of helps them come into conversation with each other over the course of its, I don't know, 200 pages or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it really spends much time proving why that is true, why that line of thought is true. And it doesn't really give you a lot of context for understanding it outside of the examples that are used here. Um, so it's a book that, that you know, I once thought was really kind of interesting and powerful and cool. And I still think it's cool. You know, I'm not trashing the book. I, I think it's generally uh, really cool. Um, but I don't, I don't get as much out of this book now as I did at one time. And that's because I think I just have a little bit less patience for the style here. Hmm. Um, I, I, I'm the kind of scholar at this point where I really want to dig through the footnotes and I really want to like figure out the trajectory of these ideas and why things are true. And then figuring out how I'm going to come into conversation with that and work really doesn't hold the door open for that kind of thing. It's a different type of book, which I think is really powerful and really effective for some people and, you know, is less for others. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, what what do you think about the style, Michael? Um, I I find myself in a similar position to you, I think, because uh, I've talked a little bit about my history with game studies before on this show, uh, trying to figure things out, like how these, like, reading, you know, uh, unit operations or something late in undergrad when I was like, hey, there's the, like, I'm in an English department at a small liberal arts school where no one knows how to use a computer, and, uh, suddenly it's like hey there's this thing called game studies so i'm reading a lot of uh game studies that is contemporary to this uh and it's interesting but it's not really hooking me um and reading like i i really enjoyed this book back when i first read it in early grad school and rereading it this time i was struck by two things uh, one is like how deeply influential this book has been for me in ways that I have forgotten. Like it's mm. one of those things where uh, I, I encountered ideas here, maybe possibly for the first time or like ways of writing or like ways of uh, doing thinking with writing uh, that I have like pondered over so much in the intervening years that I have like forgotten their origins, right? They just become sort of like things that I know I can do or that any, you know, you can do in writing or, or what have you. Um, so there's that. Uh, and also just in generally, right? Like a lot of the ideas that I encountered here are ideas that, uh, I have like pursued further in my own thinking and research and so on. Um, so there's all of that. And then there is, uh, as you were saying, kind of a, um, the, 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 the pop or the wow factor of the style of it, uh, rather than striking me now is more like, okay, I understand why this was written, right? It was written for me 10 years ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> this book was written for me 10 years ago, but it turns out the me right now, uh, 
doesn't find like finds that the style doesn't age as well because instead uh i want to know more about those ideas uh and you were talking about how uh, i can't remember exactly what it was you were saying um how you phrased it something about the line of thought uh how i would Mm -hmm. describe this book right is that it isn't uh traditionally academic in the way where it's like uh here is some context here is a claim here is some unpacking of that claim and some additional context and here is how that hooks into this next piece of evidence which is going to lead me to this next claim which actually ties back to this other claim i made that sort of um very strategic and clear signposting and uh building um it is not that it is almost uh the the book almost models like the actual like the line of thought itself right Mm -hmm. because it is like uh associative and and it's building upon itself but it's never really pausing or when it does pause to like call back to something it always kind of does it in a way where you're like wait a minute i thought that that meant something else earlier but now it feels like you're pulling it in this direction um and it it feels like that and again i think you know that is intentional that's part of this style and i think it is something that really really uh spoke to me uh back when i first read it because that is that's almost my instinct in how to write is to just write like this associative like line of my own thought and then uh you know not really signpost or anything like that but that's also i think uh not the type of writing that i actually want to do when i am uh being academic quote unquote uh so yeah that that's kind of where where i come down on it yeah and and I, I want to be clear too because i i'm realizing uh i don't think you're uh, taking me this way but i realize the the way i phrase it can be taken this way i don't think that like not doing the traditional academic move i don't think that's like a bad thing necessarily oh, right um um but it, i just want to make sure that it's you know clear clear when people are listening to this i'm not like trying to you know reverse cop this thing and be like <laughs> well uh, if it were a real book um uh but because like uh, you know i think that we need a plurality of ways of approaching ideas and i think actually what you were just saying michael is um the uh, maybe the the biggest benefit of the book that you read this book and you absorbed ideas from it into your way of approaching the world and you didn't even know it I had struggled to find someone who was writing about games in a way that felt like the way that I wanted to write about games. And Mm -hmm. it was when I read this book that I was like, oh, here's the stuff that like, here's here's something more like what I want to do. And I I think that really filtered into me. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay. well, so the way that we are covering this book, you know, we have a conversation every time that we record an episode. It's about, well, how are we going to talk about this thing? Our general feel uh, is that the the book, the first three chapters of the book are the place where the most is kind of happening in the sense of where the most argumentation is going on. And then the other chapters have are are maybe a little bit more um, descriptive or they're kind of playing within the sandbox that gets built in the first three chapters. So for, you know, the next however long it takes to record this episode, uh, we're basically going to be talking about the first three chapters, and then we'll be kind of bringing in some of the pieces, or at least giving you the highlights out of the others here. However, um, we've been talking about style, because if you haven't read the book, uh, or you haven't seen any of it, um, it, it's, it you know, we'll be reading some pieces from it, so, so you'll get a sense of it, but it's very... Uh, Fast moving, it is the pages are not numbered. It is just paragraphs that are numbered. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it has this very kind of, uh, I don't know, kind of effervescent, 
loosely connected Walter Benjamin kind of style. Mm-hmm. And it was born online. And, and it was. Right. Yeah. Should, do, do, uh, well, uh, let me. Um, well, no. Do you want to talk about um, the production history a little bit? Uh yeah, so I, I don't know that much. You may you may mm-hmm. know some details. I don't, but essentially this book came about as part of a project uh, between work and the, what is it, the Institute for the Future of the Book? Is that what it's called? Mm, sure. <laughs> yeah, sure, I, I can look. It's, it, it is in my copy of the book. Let me, let me, let me look, but... Yeah, uh, this <laughs> you're just like, yeah, sure, that thing that sounds like something out of a Neil Stevenson novel is probably <laughs> yeah, real. Y- yes, it is the Institute for the Future of the Book. Um... Uh, so it was born online, and it was, uh, I guess, these essays, essentially, right? These chapters, these essay paragraphs, and then there were, it was kind of like a, what if a book was a series of blog posts? Mm-hmm. And then people could comment on it, and there was a, a kind of, you know, back and forth between Wark and various commenters, and some of these people were, you know, pseudonymous comment- commenters, right? They, they, uh, and their comments get pulled into the print copy of the book as part of Wark's EndNote apparatus. Um, so you have like, uh, uh, you know, like a note that cites like Guy Debord, in, uh, right before we get to like a guy named Mister Tops. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but so, yeah, the, the, the book gets born online. Uh, there's kind of this moment of like back and forth with with uh, commenters on it. And then when the print version comes out, like that's that's called version 1.1 by Wark. Mm-hmm. And then uh, this version comes out or rather the print version comes out. It's a version point point uh, 2.0. Uh, and it uh, edits the chapters in response to the discussions that had happened on the digital version. So. Yeah, and I think that. Uh, uh, there might be a 2.x version. I don't know what the version number is that actually went back online. Um, oh, okay. I'm not 100% on that. Someone can check that out or someone can tell me if I'm wrong, but I believe there's even additional stuff after the print copy, but you and I both read the print copy version 2.0. Um, I think it's the one that people are most likely to encounter um, because it's a physical book. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, so, so there's, you know, uh, the citation apparatus kind of gets wrapped around that. Um, but anyway, what I was saying before is that, um, the book is written, as we've said, right. In this very kind of, of, uh, gestural style, kind of training these ideas together. Um, but at the very end, in the conclusion, there is perhaps the most, you know, plain text version of the argument of the book. And I think it's actually beneficial. You know, part of the reason we do game study study buddies is to help uh, understand these books, to make them a little bit more apparent, to help kind of help people work themselves through the book if they want to do that. Um, and I think the best way to read this book uh, is to read basically the last two pages and then read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, because those final two pages are, you know, uh, a kind of a skeleton key of the schematic for the rest of the book. Um, and more importantly, it helps you keep these big ideas that show up, these kind of key terms. It helps you understand how they relate to one another for work, which will help you read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think it's really hard to kind of work this backwards. Um, so the first one that I want to read is a is work rewriting... A uh, quote from George Lukács, who was a uh, Marxist literary critic, um, uh, really important for people like Frederick Jameson, who mm-hmm. we've weirdly talked about uh, over the past several episodes. 
Um, this this book has fit into the like the trajectory of the show way better than I thought it was going to. It, it really has. It has uh, a lot of overlap with the previous episode in many ways. Yeah, and the one before that too. Yeah, um, with, with the Kaleha. So, um, okay. So here's here's this quote that's edited, uh, and it's editing basically the words that Wark has been using from this book into the Lukacs quote. Okay, this is and this is paragraph two twenty two. The military entertainment complex destroyed both the spatio-temporal boundaries between different lands and territories and also the legal partitions between the estates. In its topology, there is a formal equality for all gamers. The economic relations which directly determine the metabolic exchange between men and nature progressively disappear. Man becomes, in the true sense, a gamer being. Game space becomes the reality for man. Thus, the recognition that game space is reality becomes possible only under the military entertainment complex in topology. But the military entertainment complex, which carried out this revolution, did so without consciousness of its own function. The agonistic forces it unleashed, the very forces that carried it to supremacy, seemed to be opposed to it like a second nature, but a more soulless, impenetrable nature than, to than topography ever was. Okay, so a lot of that probably doesn't make a lot of sense, but that is a key uh, way of understanding the book going forward. So I'm going to read the second quote, and then Michael and I are going to talk about them. Mm -hmm. So second quote, this is literally the very end of the book, and it's a little bit of a long one, but I think it's beneficial. This is 225. Last page of the physical book as far as the content before the end notes. <clears throat> Gamer theory is not about asserting the absolute uniqueness of games, nor about assimilating them to other forms, the novel or cinema, but rather about marking the game's difference from these forms as something that speaks to changes in the overall structure of social and technical relations. The form of the digital game is an allegory for the form of being. Games are our contemporaries, the form in which the present can be felt and in being felt, thought through. From this vantage point, the whole of cultural history can be rethought. It is not a question of adding gamers as the tail end of a history of forms, but of rethinking the whole of cultural history after the digital game. Play may be unthinkable, but it nevertheless has a history, and that history traverses both cultural forms and the historical form of being itself. To approach it, to think this unthinkable category of play, is to play in and against language. Gamer theory calls for concepts that make the now rather familiar world of the digital game strange again. And that's that's the thesis for the whole book. Mm -hmm. And that's what I meant when I said this. To me, this almost feels like uh, modeling a line of thought in that all of this stuff gets said, all of these, you get all of the context for these terms like topography and so on that she's using, and then we get to the very end of the book, and it's like, oh, here's what that was all about, right? All of mm -hmm. it kind of locks together in these last few paragraphs, uh, and retrospectively, you realize, like, oh, here's how uh, this, like, here's here's why we were talking about the things and the way we were talking about them. Yeah, so so if you if you had to uh, sum up those two quotes, or maybe sum up the book, uh, do you want? I mean, do you want to take a swing at like y your version of a thesis statement without all the uh, without all the jargon? Games and game studies, uh, or or let's say you know let's let's be charitable, a kind of a robust game studies is not going to be 
caught up in the questions that seemed to have dominated the field up until that point, which were questions uh, of things like ludology versus narratology, right? What is more proper to a game? Or like, what makes a game different from a movie? Or uh, how do games remediate movies? Uh, all of these kinds of things. Sure, they are there, but the proper kind of, or like the, the, the gamer theorist way of approaching this subject uh, ends up being a lot like the way that uh, mid-century Marxist critics talked about the novel uh, as a, a, a thing that comes around, uh, it, it, the novel as a media form that uh, becomes successful, becomes important uh, at the sort of very, like, at the, this point where uh, what we might call mercantile capitalism is, is really starting to ratchet up in the um, 18th and, yeah, sort of the 18th century, uh, where the, the like, the European and the English novel really starts uh, becoming uh, the, the dominant kind of cultural form, um, the Marxists look back on the, on the novel and they see it as simultaneously a thing that... Uh, distills a lot of tendencies of the culture of that time meaning say uh robinson crusoe when he washes up on an island uh the the thing that he starts to do is try to replicate or recreate as much as he can the social and material life of being a middle-class londoner um and so the, the Marxist critic looks at this novel that comes around at this time and says, this, this tells you something about how people are being taught to think. That this is how uh, the, like, so on the one hand, right? On the one hand, the novel demonstrates how people are being taught to think. And on the other hand, the novel is teaching them to think that way. Mm -hmm. Right. It, it, it uh, both provides a window into how uh, sort of say the subject is operating, um, but it also in providing that window uh, amplifies those tendencies within the subject, which uh, are inherited down from the larger kind of, you know, superstructure, the uh, uh, the economic superstructure of um, the culture. Yeah. I think that's right. Um. I think the only thing I would add there would be that uh, there's a um, I, I forget. I for, uh, let me let me look for the actual word here uh, that's coming from the Lukács. Uh, uh, the metabolic, right? Uh, there, there's a meta. You know, I, I'm I'm a good old Delondon, right? Mm -hmm. The uh, there's a metabolic transformation that is happening with birth of what Wark is calling the military uh, entertainment complex or what like people like Dardarian would be calling uh, or even maybe Julian Stalabras would be calling um, uh, the military entertainment complex right so it's not even just that games are performing a similar function to the novel although yes like that is true there's an additional level where uh, there was uh, uh, the formation of contemporary capitalism or, you know, uh, uh, postmodern capitalism, late stage capitalism, neoliberalism, right? Whatever word you want to use for post 1970s capitalism. Um, but in that time period, um, the basic undergirding principles of reality, 
right? Being, what Mork is calling being in the, in the very end there, that being is being warped around the military entertainment complex. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, the technologies, the concepts, the ways of viewing the world, as you're pointing out, the uh, framework for how you engage with daily life in, in you know, in the West in a broad, broad sense, I think we would have to say, uh, all of those things are being wrapped up in the culture of games. Um, you know, so uh, instead of seeing like a state, right, we are, are uh, seeing like a, uh, a drone operator. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, and not just in uh, literal ways in the sense of like, you know, the apparatuses we use to play our games and to deal with, um, you know, technologies in day-to-day life, uh, that those are shared, but that our basic framework for thinking about our relationship to the world is mediated in similar ways as people who are using these technologies uh, that are developed out of a military mindset, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a militarily um, financed and formed and disseminated mindset. Um, and if people are interested in this this line of thinking in a broad sense, right, there's a lot of people who are doing that. Um, uh, I talk about Patrick Krogan on here fairly regularly. Patrick Krogan's book, Gameplay Mode, is all about that. Colin Milburn's first book is all about that. Or maybe not first book, but Mondo Nano um, is has a, an amazing chapter uh, uh, about nanotechnology and the visual culture of nanotechnology as it's deployed by um, like DARPA and the mm. State Department. Um, uh, so there, there's plenty of stuff kind of in that universe to, to go and look at, but, but work is approaching it from the level of not just media and media effects and our relationship to media, but, you know, metaphysics, uh, mm-hmm. being right. What, you know, what, what, uh, ontology, I guess maybe is the most precise term, right? How is our day to day quality of existence in the way that we think existence, how is that impacted by games in a broad sense mm-hmm. um which maybe takes us to the cave well since i was the one who decided to teach this essay i i will i will do the cave um mm-hmm. uh so what we need to know about the cave uh is that it is work uh reworking plato's allegory of the cave that's that's one thing that's going on here and that's one way to uh, kind of understand what is what are the stakes for the whole book um mm-hmm. The chapter is called Agony on the Cave. So uh, Plato's Allegory of the Cave, if uh, you're not familiar with it, is, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the philosophical sort of uh, parable uh, about how Plato thinks uh, both sort of reality works, but also uh, how the process of gaining knowledge works. What if we were all people like what would if what if there was a person let's say right or or a group of persons who were trapped in a cave and they had been there their entire lives and all they saw were shadows on the wall in front of them and they had been bound in such a way that they couldn't look left or right couldn't look up or down they just looked straight ahead um at this wall in front of them and behind them there were some torches and there was a procession of people carrying uh let's say statues of animals or different types of people and so on and so forth just walking in between uh the light and uh, the very backs of these people who are being forced to look at the cave wall. Um, And so the people looking at the wall would only see the shadows of the things being held as the procession passed. Because these people had only ever lived in the cave, because they had only ever been there looking at those things, uh, they would take what they saw to be the sum total of reality. 
Um, they would have no reason to think it wasn't reality. And so, uh, if we imagine that one of these people happened to break free, uh, and they, you know, scuttled up out of the cave, first of all, it would hurt a lot because they'd have to be climbing out of this cave, and then they'd get out into the world outside of the cave, and there it would blind them uh, temporarily because the sun was so bright. Uh, it would be painful, right? This this moment of uh, sort of escaping your uh, given context would be painful in some way. Uh, but then after a moment, once your eyes adjusted, you would be able to see, oh, like, that's a tree, and that's an animal, and that's a person. All these things that I've been seeing before, all these shadows, uh, those were just shadows, right? There, there's actually something more here. There's something real. Uh, I gotta go tell my friends about this. So immediately after you escape the cave, you turn around and you go back in, and you try to tell everyone back in the cave what, what, what you found, and they don't believe you. Because all they have seen are the things on the shadow walls. And so the process of education or the process of kind of um, generally, you know, a kind of uh, enlightenment for Plato is uh, this way of, like, forcing people to see the truth behind the shadow, right? Like, it, that's like the metaphorical way of putting it, um, but trying to find kind of like the real causes or the, the and if you think of Plato's theory of forms, right, this makes very much uh, a lot of sense. Uh, what is reality? Uh, is it, uh, is all the stuff that we're seeing kind of like uh, ephemeral or transitory and there are like forms that exist in some higher plane that subtend or undergird, uh, I don't know, our ability to recognize various types of chair as chairs, right? Because they all participate in the metaphysical uh, form of a chair. Mm -hmm. So that's Plato. Is there a perfect triangle <laughs> in, the, in the universe that all triangles are tending toward yes and the answer for plato is yes mm -hmm. there's a perfect triangle and also people might be thinking hey michael that's an interesting example of a chair that you used and yet i believe that's the actual example that's used yeah in in the republic <laughs> yeah um, so right there there is uh that that's plato and work is rewriting this and what is the, the first thing, I guess, uh, we need to, to say is, is that uh, Wark rewrites the cave, not as an actual cave, but as the name of a gaming arcade, right? Like a virtual mm -hmm. reality arcade. So imagine, again, imagine uh, we are all, rather than being trapped in caves, we are all in a virtual reality arcade, and we're all wearing our VR helmets, and we're playing our VR games, Uh and what happens if we escape the VR arcade and we find ourselves just in like more of a mall with more arcades <laughs> where more things are being uh, uh, under underwritten by the same forces, uh, the same social forces of let's, you know, consumerism, capitalism and so on uh, that were just uh that were, that were, you know, the, the things that put us in the VR arcade to begin with, the things that put us in the cave. And what do, don't, what do we do with the, the agony or the agon? Um, because that's the word that she ends up going for is uh, agon as uh, an almost more neutral term uh, signifying like struggle. Uh, you know, agon is what the, the Greeks would have called uh, 
the exertion of the athletes during the Olympics, right? Like the Olympics were were sites of agon of of that type of struggle. Um, so, on the one hand, uh, what if there is no outside to the cave? And this is one of the things that work is is trying to uh, argue because uh, for her, the cave is capitalism, right? Like, or rather, the the thing that built the cave, the thing that keeps the cave running is capitalism. Uh, you might be tempted to say that it is ideology, um, but it really is capitalism, I think, at least as it's intended yeah. here. Uh, yeah, well, and, and something I want to say really briefly, just because I think it's a good place to, to, to put it, is there's been a little bit of conversation, you know, people sometimes, uh, if, if you're not part of the Range Touch Discord, uh, you wouldn't know this, but the, on the Range Touch Discord, there's, you know, chat channel for talking about game study study buddies, and some people are reading, you know, they read the books and kind of chat about them a little bit before we record the episode. We had a really interesting conversation uh, yesterday, or a little short conversation about, uh, is this ideology or not? Um, and I think it's important. I think what you're you're pointing out here is exactly correct. That for me, I don't read anything in this book uh, as about as being about ideology specifically. Um, ideology, and by that I mean like you know a series of beliefs about the system that you live in. Um, ideology is an, uh, is epiphenomenal to what is what Wark is addressing here, mm-hmm. which is that capitalism. Uh, so fundamentally, our version of capitalism, what what we're living in right now, has so fundamentally changed the basic um, structural mode of life that uh, ideology is, in fact, secondary to it. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, to kind of put the work in conversation with uh, the Bales book that we read, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Ultimately your opinions or your ways of thinking or your ways of understanding yourself in relationship to the characters of Persona 5, right? Even if you see yourself as fully, or even if you experience yourself as fully ideologically self-same, right? You're the kind of of pure subject of Bales' book. That is 100%, it doesn't matter at all because... The basic operations of your life are being manipulated in this way that work is talking about. You understand and you are living within a fully totalized structure that is transformed that doesn't care about any kind of ideological stance that a human being could have um, because you were in the the VR arcade already, right? Mm -hmm. And any kind of uh, epistemology you could have, any kind of ideology, anything like that, um, is fundamentally on the inside, right? This is the kind of classic difference or, or the, the way that this is talked about sometimes is the difference between ontology and ideology. Ideology is always inside of ontology. Uh, if ontology doesn't move in some kind of way, it doesn't matter what the plurality of, of ideologies could be within that space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the difference here. I mean, you know, often in the show, I find myself uh, saying things like an argument gets under another argument. And by that, I mean, right, it, it gets to a more fundamental layer um, that, you know, that, that needs to be addressed before, you know, kind of top level stuff can get talked about. The Wark book, you know, Gamer Theory gets under the Bales book. Mm-hmm. It, it is addressing something more fundamental. I'm going to read something here, actually, that okay, great. Uh, yeah, I think thank you. demonstrates this really well. This is from paragraph eight. <clears throat> the game has not just colonized reality. It is also the sole remaining ideal. Game space, and we'll talk more about that, but game space uh, 
proclaims its legitimacy through victory over all rivals. The reigning ideology imagines the world as a level playing field, upon which all folks are equal before God, the great game designer. History, politics, culture, game space dynamites everything that is not in the game, like an outdated Vegas casino. Uh, so... Here we have uh, game space, which is a core term that we should unpack it for this chapter, um, and it is explicitly something that is not outside of ideology, but uh, subtends ideology, right? Mm -hmm. Ideology is our relationship to game space in this quote. Uh, and so game space is what work names, uh, you know, the, the ontology of the world as it has been warped by uh, the, the military entertainment complex. Uh, as, as you've been trying to uh, sort of get at. Um, so when the game has colonized reality, uh, that, is, that is what she's sort of saying, right? Like uh, the, the fact that so much of reality uh, seems to operate on game-like principles uh, is not just an effect of, say, neoliberalism teaching us that the world is a level playing field and we all have the same basic abilities and uh, so on and so forth, even as it's sort of structurally undermining uh, uh, those claims. Um, the, the material way that the world has been organized is game space in the sense that uh, it's all about accumulation. It's about numbers going up. It's a, and you, any, any sort of like moment of contact uh, is a moment that is, it has a, a, a gain or a loss. It has a winner or a loser. Uh, and the ideology then is, is the thing that uh, allows you to exist in a world that is uh, set up in that way, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, 100%. Sorry, you were also in a line of thought earlier that I might have completely, absolutely wrecked. Oh, no, I was, I mean, I was going to say that, uh, I was going to make the exact point you did, which is that this book gets under the Bales book. In, in gotcha. that, so in the Bales book, uh, the issue is like, okay, so here we are in the world and we're going to, like, we keep coming up with these fantasies. Um, and we go out into, like, the, the games are uh, things we might approach as escapes from ideology, as escapes from the world, but it's actually in these fantasy spaces that ideology becomes sort of the most clear. And one of the problems we had um, in talking through that that kind, that style of, of argument um, uh, was that at a certain point, it's just kind of like, yeah, so every time you try to step outside of ideology, you just reproduce more ideology. Great. Like, mm -hmm. I, I, I want to know something beyond this, or like, I want to know something more than this. Um, and this uh, works response, right, when she says that the game has not just colonized reality, it is also the sole remaining ideal. This is the thing that she gets to by the end of the chapter, Um when she starts going on about, so, you know, if, if there is no outside of the cave, if there is no outside of capitalism, if there is no outside of game space, how do we, like, what do we do with it? How do we hold game space accountable? Um, so uh, she says that we can uh, do this by using uh, the game proper, right? The game itself, not game space, which is the world outside of the game that has been remade in the form of a game, uh, the game proper shadows the ideal, and this is a, you know, quote uh, from paragraph 19, it shadows the ideal form of the algorithm. So, in the way that a game 
uh, an actual game by by necessity, uh, and if we're talking about a digital game, extreme necessity because otherwise it's not going to run. Has it has to click together in certain ways, right? The rules have to register uh, and be valid. Uh, a computer has to be able to uh, re you know skim through the code uh, without coming up on something that's just going to make it uh, totally crash. Um, there is a consistency not only to the to the uh, code of a game there is a consistency in 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 you know sort of the best cases uh there is a consistency to how a game operates when i push right mario is always going to go right on the screen when i push a button mario is always going to jump or he's going to throw a fire flower or something um there is uh no you know we games are a bunch of rules like that that get stacked up on top of each other that, uh, you know, end up with a whole bunch of sort of emergent and, and divergent kind of behaviors. Uh, but it all comes down to things that must be true in the computer for the game to actually function. So there is a consistency to games that does not exist outside of them in the real world in game space, even though game space, uh, if, as we are sort of ideologically bound to it, um, we're, we're constantly sort of being led to believe that it is consistent or it should be consistent. And so uh, by holding the game or holding the game proper uh, up as kind of the simultaneously like the validation of, of game space, but also the thing that proves that game space is a lie, that there is no level playing field, that there is no allegory or allegory, um, that there is no algorithm that is uh, running history for us. Uh, we can open up a space of resistance uh, to game space uh, by being able to kind of like hit those moments of intervention and be like, actually, if if the world was really like a game, it wouldn't be working like this. It would be working in some other way, right? It would be more like Grand Theft Auto than like whatever nightmare we're living in now. Yeah, I you know, the immediate thing. So I guess as you're saying that two things I think of, right? So uh, on one hand, um, this is something that I didn't think of necessarily while reading, but your kind of explanation of it unlocks for me. This is also Wark's figure of the hacker, right? Mm -hmm. and, and this relationship does come up directly later in the book. But the idea that someone who understands this exact relationship you're pointing to is someone who can foil the system in some kind of way. Um, so if people are interested in that, you should check out the Hacker Manifesto. Um, on the other hand, uh, or, or, or also additionally, I guess not on the other hand, it's not oppositional. Uh, this is a lot like the story that CLR James tells about, uh, was it his grandfather, the, oh, the engine mechanic? That's right. right. Uh, it, you know, it is a, a, the, the structure of uh, colonial imperial violence, right, in that story when, when it, and for reminders, or if you haven't listened to the episode, right, we talk about it in our episode on Beyond a Boundary. Uh, CLR James tells a story about uh, an engine at a plantation that can't be fixed, that everyone's having a hard time with it. And I believe it's his grandfather, um, although I might be wrong. It's you know been a minute since we've read mm -hmm. that book. Um, uh, this person that James is telling the story about uh, goes goes into the room alone, fixes the engine and comes out. And they all ask him like, how did you do it? How did you, how did you fix it? And he refuses to tell them. Right. Um, but, but this is exactly it, right? This is someone who is, has made, is in the system. is fully within a totalized system of, in this case, right. Racial, racial capitalism, racial and imperial capitalism. And, but understands the, the game, the formal relationship of race as it is presented right in front of him in that moment, uh, 
inside of the quote-unquote game space, right, or the full totalized system in front, and uh, makes a infuriating intervention, right? Infuriating mm-hmm. for, like, whiteness as uh, this process of knowledge absorption and, and co-option, right? And refuses to be made transparent by it. Um, and now I don't think, I wouldn't say that that is a story of, like, universal <laughs> struggle against, you know, uh, colonial violence, but but I think it works for C.L.R. James in a very similar way as it would work for work, is it's a very clear demonstration of how knowledge of how the system works allows one to intervene in practically in practical ways in your day-to-day life mm-hmm. um, that, you know, detourn or move away from that system and try to do something else beyond it. And ultimately for James, right, that that is a small, uh, in CLR James's kind of calculus of, of struggle or revolutionary struggle, that is a kernel from which consciousness can be built, right? Mm-hmm. And so something like that action for work, I think we can make a similar argument, is uh, a place in which consciousness about struggling against game space can, can kind of be born or be expanded from. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, yeah, it's really interesting to me how, how those things go, go together. But um, it, it, uh, is there anything else in this chapter? I, I guess the other thing I would say about this chapter that shows up other than, than you know, the cave, as you've pointed out, and then game space as an idea uh, this kind of totalizing um, system of capitalism, capitalism plus, maybe we can, mm-hmm. we can call it capitalism plus uh, the workings of the uh, military entertainment complex. Um, the only thing I would say here, too, is that um, work is kind of summoning up this idea that we've talked about, of course, several times on the show of the difference between play and games. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to show up several times in, in, in uh, over the course of the book. And basically, you know, there's this, uh, this is on in 16, right? Uh, in paragraph 16, this is a quote, quote, the utopian dream of liberating play from the game of a pure play beyond the game merely opened the way for the extension of game space into every aspect of everyday life. Um, and what I think is interesting about that is that, that work in very big distinction right, to a lot of of other people that we read and talk about, is basically saying that the explosion of play in 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, in the United States in particular, and we can think here about, you know, uh, Bernie DeCoven and New Games Movement. Um, We can also think about play studies and play theory outside of that that sometimes get brought into game studies. So uh, Derrida, the James Hans that we have read in the show, uh, all the French people who are talking about play, the French theorists who are talking about play, um, all of those th- moments of instantiating play as some sort of system outside of the game um, are also opportunities for game space to assert itself, for the military industrial complex to, or military entertainment complex rather, mm-hmm. to capture reality um, mm-hmm. and to turn it into game space. But that's a big long tangent. <laughs> um, Michael, you know, I'm confused. What's an allegory again? So an allegory is a story that is intended to be read both as a narrative in itself, uh, but as having a second level of meaning, uh, which requires some amount of interpretation and uh 
you know, sort of cognitive relationship uh, between maybe two different levels of, of uh, what's going on. For instance, that story I just told about the cave from Plato is an allegory, right? It is a story about uh, some people stuck in a cave and someone gets out and so on and so forth, but it is also an allegory in that it uh, metaphorically encapsulates uh, in its various bits and pieces uh, what Plato thinks is kind of the dynamic of existing in the world and gaining knowledge and, and things like that. Is there an additional level? I, this is me being the, uh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm being a stand-in um, uh, uh, for the audience here. <clears throat> uh, Professor Michael, mm -hmm. the, uh, uh, is, is there some sort of relationship even beyond that of, of mere replaceability where one thing can, can simply stand in for another thing? I don't know. That's a very smart question, little Cameron. Uh, why don't you tell I'm me? I'm eleven. <laughs> tell me what you think, little eleven-year-old Cameron. <laughs> well, uh, I transform into a dragon, of course. Uh, you know, <laughs> Baldur's I'm, I'm Gate Three. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, uh, you know. So I I think that uh, yeah, your explanation of allegory is is one hundred percent spot on, right? Story that that has additional meaning or can stand in for another thing, but allegory i think in a in a general sense in the kind of critical theory tradition that we talk about work here we're talking about chapter two at this point work here is very willing to bring in walter benjamin mm -hmm. right uh, marxist theorist we've, we've talked about benjamin several times um over the course of the show uh benjamin kind of explodes allegory even out from that right it, it basically talks about the development of industrial capitalism and, and especially the media cultures of the time that he was most active you know the 19 teens through the 1920s uh, of course he dies during nazi occupation um but uh th the, this kind of media culture that he is writing about um at the time that that the transformations of capitalism and the transformations in uh media um, in his moment, are for him the work of allegory. Um, so within capitalism, things begin regularly standing in for other stuff, and that's just the way that things work. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not just, you know, the the allegory of the cave where it's like a story of people in a cave and a story about reality. It's that a story about one, uh, a story about thing A is a story about thing B is a, is a reference to thing C, is a, 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 a play off of thing D, is a, uh, a conceptual linkage to thing, uh, you know, G all the way down the line. Mm -hmm. um, that things start standing in for other things uh, in, a, in a kind of infinite replaceability. Um, you know, we can think about um, video game lore. Mm, interesting mm -hmm. as, as a mode of that. But, but allegory kind of gets exploded in that moment. Um, and work is using that to do some discussion about how video games work. So yeah, what is uh, what ends up being interesting then, and this is this is actually something that gets mentioned in the previous chapter, but it's coming through uh, more explicitly here. Uh, games are not representations, says Work. Um, representations in the way that I think we tend to talk about them in normal discourse, in Twitter discourse, right? How does how does uh, this game represent uh, this type of person or this type of relationship or this sort of identity, uh, this uh, dynamic between people, so on and so forth? Um, we are, Wark is, is going to be consistently in, in this book, um, we should say, right, not only is this chapter called Allegory, it is called Allegory on the Sims. So after the first chapter, which is on Plato, every additional chapter has kind of a game, a specific game that is about, and this one is about the Sims. Uh, 
So the uh, game as not representation, but allegory means we have to step back uh, even even further and not just think like, okay, so how does The Sims, uh, you know, represent our lives in in the sense of uh, like, I don't know, you know, buying or building a house and getting a job and collecting stuff that impacts our mood and so on and so forth. Um, how does this game actually allegorize uh, the moment in which it is produced? How does it actually allegorize uh, the the relationships of production under which we find ourselves playing the game itself? Uh, and one of the key terms that comes out in this chapter is something that work is borrowing from Galloway, and I don't remember where he comes up with it, but it's allegorithm. Mm -hmm. It's it, in one of the gamer theory essays. I mean, uh, you know, obviously, but it's in gamer theory. It, gamer theory is the book that we're reading. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Gamer theory. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The uh, book that we read. <laughs> oh, oh, uh, uh, gaming or on gaming. Yeah, gaming. Or, or on yeah. games. Okay. <laughs> so I was like, I, just, I do not know what is happening. Like, gamer You know the, the one. <laughs> um, How dare you? <laughs> anyway. Um, uh, so the allegorism, uh, is like the, the users in like the computer users intuitive relationship to the way that the computer's algorithms work, right? The way that you, uh, come to understand, uh, the mechanics of a game, right? Which are algorithmic. As you become like more aware of the the various systems that are at work and how they work against and also with each other, so in The Sims, as you as you realize like okay, I have all of these, all of my, my little sim has all of these wants and needs. Uh, some of them must be met through eating. If I want to eat, I need to have money, so they need to get a job. Uh, but also the house is dirty, so that's making them sad, so they need to clean things up. And they also don't like their chair. If I got them a better chair, then that would like add plus five to their mood because they feel like they're living in a nicer place. Uh, that is the allegorism. Uh, the way that you get taught to intuit the systems and then internalize them, um, at least insofar as like playing the game is concerned for you. Uh, so that is one thing that is important here, uh, but also in terms of allegory, uh, what does this mean, right? What does it mean that this, like, that we have these objects or uh, these sort of, like, little playsets that teach us to think in certain, like, why, why is that happening? Why, what is fun about this, right? Because this is, like, running, like, play straight into work. Uh, and this is, of course, like a thing that gets mentioned here, gets always mentioned about The Sims, uh, that the, the, the paradox of this franchise is that it is a game that is about existing in the world and some not it's it's not about like fantasies it's it, it or rather it is about fantasies right but what are those fantasies um and so just uh this is this is my favorite line in this chapter um actually there are two of them this is from paragraphs 35 
uh, in 37. No wonder the Sims turn in vain to the gamer as God, because of course when the Sim gets very, very upset, they will look up to the camera at you, the player, um, and try to express themselves and, and their dissatisfaction. Um, for it is the gamer who has turned toward the game as a messianic reversible time. So that's mm -hmm. 35. And then 37, uh, the sim who addresses a helpless, hopeless, or lost god lives in the allegory of game space itself. So um, this, again, like, I oh, I, I love how this book is written, <laughs> um, I have to say. Uh, you know, something like not all of the attempts land, uh, but when they do, like these two, I, I think they work really well. Um, so on the one hand, we have the sim turning to look at the player, uh, and the player who has looked into the computer searching for messianic reversible time. So Sims' lives are divided up on schedules, on taking this or that, uh, going to work, cleaning, playing, whatever they need to, to meet their needs, which is, of course, exactly what we are doing when we are playing The Sims. We look into The Sims to find uh, messianic time, right? A sort of, like, time beyond our actual daily lives, our actual schedules um, of the things we have to do uh, in order to, you know, relax or, or feel at peace in the world, because otherwise... Uh, we would be like the Sim who turns to look at the camera and asks, like, what the hell is going on? Why have, why have I peed myself? Where, why are all these potato chip bags all over the floor? I'm so tired. I'm so hungry. What is going on? Uh, in order to get over that feeling that uh, we would be doing that in, in, the, in the contemporary kind of, you know, game space situation, the contemporary state of, of, of capitalism, uh, where there does not seem to be, you know, a, a genuine metaphysical god who's going to be answering our prayers, and there is certainly nothing like a, a state apparatus or, or some sort of safety net um, that is there to catch us, uh, we turn back around into the game. And we uh, sort of, in some ways, right, fulfill the desire that we have outside of the game of having someone that the, the little person can turn around and look at and be like, please help me. Please make my life better. Mm -hmm. um, another interesting kind of uh, uh, thing that happens here in that universe is the conversation later in this chapter that is drawing a connection between gameplay and the kind of material production of things, mm -hmm. right? So EA Spouse shows up here at the end. I don't know if you have something you want to say about that or not. Um, and also, um, Warwick begins connecting the military entertainment complex to um, the overthrow of Patrice Lumumba mm -hmm. in um, uh, Central Africa and the Congo, Dem Democratic Republic of the Congo. Um, and then the ongoing civil war, um, um, uh, or at the time, ongoing civil wars uh, about the extraction of coltan, um, and uh, which basically fuels electronics mm -hmm. in a broad sense uh, which is now being extracted from australia uh, according to work um, or at least at the time was um but uh but yeah so so drawing um the end of this chapter or the kind of follow through here is all that work that you and i are talking about of kind of where's the does the uh, algorithm sit kind of in this system uh, and then drawing a direct connection into material production of stuff in the world um, you know, the the minerals and metals that make the world go, basically. Do you have anything else you want to say about this chapter? No, I think I'm good. Cameron, what do you think about America? Yeah. 
Well, let's let's uh, sort of like scale it down. Um, mm-hmm. I was, of course, asking what do you think about uh, uh, America, uh, you know, the the, the continent. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, let's just make it this chapter, which also happens to be the third chapter uh, that is called America on Civilization Three. Civilization Three, I guess, uh, is showing up here because Wark is trying to draw uh, draw our attention to another kind of uh, a Lego rhythm, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's one between uh, the way that Civilization Three sees the world in space and the way that we experience the world in space. She's not making a direct argument that Civilization Three is somehow the whole world, mm-hmm. right? Uh, her argument here is that the the transformations that are happening alongside the military entertainment complex that are fueled by the stuff in the last chapter, right? Coltan extraction, worldwide global global capitalism, all these things, the stuff from the very end of the last chapter, that those things have allowed us to reframe the world as a kind of unsplit up space initially, right? So undifferentiated mass space um, in which... Uh, uh, lines can be drawn. She uses the word lines quite often uh, mm-hmm. through the rest of this book. So, for example, think think of this, right? So think of something like the Marshall McLuhan-style argument about the global village, you know, mm-hmm. that, that we are all now connected in such a way that that uh, lots of, of um, um, uh, modes of communication can happen. We need a theory, or, 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 or we, we uh, the military industrial or military entertainment complex that allowed that to occur needs a uh, a mode of generating undifferentiated space. Okay, so that's that is the lines of commerce that connect Central Africa to Japan to the United States. You know, through console production, right, or actually to to Japan to China to the United States. You know, mm-hmm. in the line of production and the distribution of those things, and then all the different lines of communication that are afforded by the worldwide game development industry, and then all the different lines of connection that are afforded to uh, between your local Target where you purchase your console or your GameStop and then your home, right? So these are all these different methods of of communication uh, that ultimately are produced, um, uh, are, are flattened, right? So global commerce is trying to stretch across all of those different things. The military entertainment complex then introduces difference into that system. And so topology is the word that we give to the way that we now understand how space functions as undifferentiated, as all the same, and then as split up arbitrarily through trade lines, military interventions, um, I'm trying to think of anything that would be not those two different things, but I guess communication <laughs> technologies, transformations of knowledge, brain drain of uh, doctors, all those different things. Work is then likening that or, or giving us an intro into that by uh, talking about how civilization thinks space as well, right? So mm-hmm. if you ever played a civilization game, you're bebopping all around, right? You got your little units. You're going from, from um, you know, now hex to hex. Used to be square to square. Back in my day, square to square. Um, and then you're uncovering <laughs> We have four this. sides to our shapes, and we liked it. And we loved That was enough. <laughs> we, we didn't need uh, this many more um, uh, lines of intersection. But that mimics the way. So, right, think about the fog of war, for example, right? Um, can't see You can't see into it. Completely undifferentiated. 
and then the mechanisms of gameplay there, right? So uh, transformation of the ecology, uh, transformations in uh, or by adding cities, uh, stationing troops in certain places, building forts, junk like that, you know, to help with military defense. That thing then differentiates space into different kinds of uses. Mm-hmm. So th- th- it's a kind of double maneuver. I said all that to say. It's a double maneuver is is first game space has to imagine the world as completely flat as something that can be intervened in uh, universally by -hmm. methods. And then it does that intervention in a thousand different ways. And that's America. Mm -hmm. Is that is that a sufficient explanation of, of topology here? Yeah, I mean, I would I would say so. Uh, and just to like uh, unpack a little bit about what what work is getting at, I think by calling that America, uh, she says that you know when you play Civilization and you win, it does not matter what country you have said you are, you are America. Uh, in the sense that uh, I think she's taking you know the United States of America as uh, uh, emblematic of the trends of, uh, you know, uh, capitalist and imperialist expansion and uh, the concomitant expansion of the the military entertainment complex and communications technologies uh, that uh, inform the logic of what it means to, like, play civilization well, right? When she talks Mm -hmm. about how, for instance, uh, in a civilization game, revolutions always come from above, disorder always comes from below, uh, and that is not inherent like that is not a uniquely american way of thinking um but she is trying to get at i think uh a, a kind of americanist ideology or a rather an ideology that uh she as an australian right is going to call uh, uh, america or american um yeah yeah something that gets uh, kind of a, an important reading of the game that's done here uh you know kind of a close reading of a very specific uh, mechanical function is that uh she says you can uh when you want to change the government that you have right mm-hmm. you do that through uh you know uh, uh you, you you pick a different government in the top level system um and then that happens but there is no way of transforming the material construction of the world or production of the world, meaning that the way resources are counted and accrued, the way that the actual numbers of the world go up and down are not impacted in, in any way, right? So you can't communize, right? Mm-hmm. You, you know, your, your sieve. You cannot um, uh, create a agricultural utopia that that uh, or, you know <laughs> you can't you can't Sovietize the peasants right <laughs> uh, in in a basic way right mm-hmm. um, and you can't transform um, you know farm production uh, like in the the Cultural Revolution uh, those things aren't possible because of the way that like individual cities function in the code of um, the thing right of the game right so it's the that. This is the chapter, I think, that does the best job of connecting up what the military entertainment complex does in the world, you know, like in the sense of how it moves the material world that we that you and I, Michael, live in, Mm -hmm. um, and then how that intersects with um, the kind of game space idea. Because fundamentally, right, we can move all the pieces around in our lives, like in our in our day to day material lives in the same way that we can move all the pieces around in our sieve. But the basic system that allows our lives to exist, um, as long as we're only moving the pieces around, we can't ever touch it. Um, Mm -hmm. And in fact, the military entertainment complex has generated 
a material condition that we live in that that prevents us from actually tackling that. Um, you know, this is this is uh, this is basically. I'm not trying to read this uncharitably. Like I'm not I'm not saying that this book is making this argument, but you can see lines of alliance uh, between this and like, um, uh, you know. Uh, you, you want a communist revolution, and yet you tweet, mm-hmm. right? And yet, and yet you use a cell phone produced by capitalism. Um, and uh, but but work is addressing that and taking it one step further and saying, look, the the you and I and our lives don't have a way of addressing that mm-hmm. level of production in capitalism. It's not like I can just stop buying iPhones and it goes away. Mm-hmm. Um, it requires fundamental material transformation of the world that individuals have no access to, right? We can just mm-hmm. hit the buttons, basically. Um, we can't... I have no way of stopping coltan extraction. Um, right. As like, it does being. not matter if I, if you and I never buy another computer or game console for the rest of our lives, as long as things kind of are set up the way that they are, like, coltan is going to be continued to be mined. Yeah, and, and that's the algorithm kind of part of it, right? Mm-hmm. The fact that you and I can say that means that we have fully internalized the the rules of, of the game, as it were. Exactly, right. right. Um, and, um, you know, maybe the problem is we're just not thinking uh, broadly enough, but probably not. It's probably that game space has so constrained us that we can't think beyond it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anything else about topology here? Topology is a key term that shows up again kind of throughout this as I read in the kind of quote at the beginning. At the end of this episode, I'm going to read that quote again, and I think it'll be good for for you and I to mm-hmm. kind of close read it. Yeah. Yeah, I would just say um, one way that I, I might suggest thinking about topology um, at this stage, and we'll, we'll see how well it holds up later, is that to, to some extent in this chapter, topology... It does not mean the end of history, but it connotes maybe some of the same things in that topology for work is part of an evolution of a concept uh, starting with topos or topoi, right, meaning sort of commonplaces. And there's a a kind of um, suggestion here, right, a sort of progressional sketch of uh, history as the world was at first made out of um, topoi, right, which is Greek. It means literally like, you know, sort of like places or commonplaces, right? So there's just like a collection of places um that are kind of like hanging out together uh and then uh we have through like as history progresses we move toward a way of thinking that is more topography uh and we might think of this as you know colonial expansion from uh europe uh and things like that where maps start getting made right there is not just the things that we know not just the topoi um there are other things that could be added to this collection of places and so Mm -hmm. everything is being mapped and uh uh you know sketched in and so on and so forth uh but then by the time we have sort of the whole world mapped uh suddenly the the topography stops seeming as vital because once 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 uh you have reached the finite limit of the globe, everything becomes one undifferentiated place again. And so topology is kind of this way of talking about uh, the feeling that uh, whereas topography was about like sketching out the relationships between places and sort of like snapping the puzzle pieces together, uh, topology uh, suggests um, almost just like the database, 
right? Mm -hmm. Everything is kind of already known, and sure, it fits together in certain ways, but also uh, these relationships are arbitrary, and they can be mixed and matched uh, in in certain ways. Um, There's a bit where she talks about, how does she say this? Um, uh, Yeah, game space turns description into a database and storyline into navigation. So Mm -hmm. uh, the the thing about Civ, right, that makes it uh, illustrative here is that, you know, there's not really a storyline to a Civ game. It is a series of steps that kind of are suspended in in the game's possibility space, and you just sort of, like, chart your way through it until you get to your, your uh, you know, the win condition or, like, whatever it is, like, I'm gonna do, try to do this type of thing, this this playthrough, and see how it works, right? Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it is uh, not, it is simultaneously uh un like non-linear um there is like freedom there but it is also bound up within a, a very regimented uh series of programmed possibilities the next chapter is uh called analog and it's not a hate story <laughs> uh i don't even know if uh if if, if analog um that game was out at this point. I need to double check. Uh, no, but this, I think it was. This chapter is on uh, Katamari Damashi. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to be honest. I have no idea what's going on in this chapter. Yeah. Um, sorry, I just double checked. Yeah, Analog came out in 2012. Um, there you go. <laughs> a little bit longer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um. So yeah, this this chapter, I mean, I would say this chapter it's about uh sort of the way the the the, the reason Katamari comes up here is that uh Katamari is a game that is sort of in love with analog aesthetics, right? Analog analog as a uh, the way that like the, you know, quote unquote real world is. Analog as a uh, things existing on a continuous spectrum as opposed to the digital um Mm -hmm. and i guess i would say that this chapter is kind of all about how uh that game on the one hand is evincing a a kind of affection or fondness or maybe even nostalgia for the analog and the, the katamari itself right is a very analog uh thing as this little ball that you roll and you roll and like as you roll it slowly increases in size right in that gradual continuous um escalation uh but it is nevertheless right part of a a digital game and uh this chapter is sort of about how how the analog is constantly being sort of like folded back into or reincorporated into kind of a new digital regime Mm mm-hmm um yeah the 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 kind of i guess primary uh allegory for the algorithm weirdly enough mm-hmm. uh here uh, is the the myth of sisyphus right mm-hmm. um and kind of rolling the ball the ball up the hill there's also something the ball up the hill <laughs> the boulder yeah um there's also something here where work is in in i think a pretty characteristic way uh being pretty playful about the logic or the 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 language of analog stick and mm-hmm. analog system as opposed to digital system mm-hmm. um and uh that i just don't that like that kind of playfulness is not where i'm at that kind of deridian mm-hmm. yeehaw energy is not where <laughs> is not where i'm at um 
the uh, yeah, and there's also something going on here too about um, that the relationship of of the of the ball, the Katamari ball, uh, to the world it is in, is the relationship between us and game space. Mm-hmm. But I also I I don't think I could reconstruct that for you. I think this is somehow beyond my um, capability here. Yeah, well, I think that's fine because like if if these chapters sound interesting to you, like definitely pick up this book and uh, look at them uh, because as as you've already said, I think it's the first three chapters that sort of lay out the broadest parts of the argument, and a lot of these other chapters feel more like elaborations on uh, points that are sort of internal to the, to the earlier chapters. If that makes mm-hmm. sense, yeah. Uh, so, unless do you have anything else you want to say about this? No, and and, and uh, all these other chapters kind of doing that. I think we're going to move pretty quickly through them is my my vibe. Yes, because that was going to be my next move was to say that uh, the, the the following chapter after, uh, you know, Katamari is Atopia on Vice City. Uh, and this actually has, in some ways, right, this has a lot of resonance with the last episode with the Bales book. Um, but fundamentally, what this chapter is about uh is about how so vice city is a world of perfect crime if we're going to talk about uh uh, thinking about this again through through the bales book right the um that that style of zizekian jamesonian ideological critique uh would say something like oh uh we we have um kind of this uh you know ideological uh demand uh to to be good like that's sort of the traditional uh common sense reading right we have this um ideological demand to like be a good person and so on and so forth and so we imagine this space outside of ideology which is the video game and especially like the open world crime video game like grand theft auto which this is you know 2007 um so this is really like I, I, you know, I was I was the Grand Theft Auto player of this generation. You and I both were. And it was mm-hmm. uh, a real hot button issue of like, what are these kids doing with this horrible, violent video game that allows you to murder everyone and so on and so forth? Uh, and then again, the, the Zizekian, Jamesonian, uh, uh, Fisherian uh, reading uh, might look at that and be like, OK, so we, we have the traditional understanding of ideology, be a good person, create the fantasy space where you can escape the demands of that ideology and just go hog wild, right? Indulge your, your darkest, deepest desires. But hold on, hold on. What is it you're actually doing in Vice City? Well, um, you are a small business owner, sort of, who has mm-hmm. a, a number of successes and scales the social ladder and gets all sorts of validation and, you know, the 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 critique that you can make of every Grand Theft Auto game is that it just reinforces actually, right, despite all of its apparent transgressiveness, um, what is it in fact doing is is reinforcing uh, or modeling uh, certain attitudes uh, I- inherent to neoliberal capitalism about uh, everyone being kind of like isolated atoms ping-ponging off of each other and just trying to, uh, you know, scale whatever uh, a social ladder is before them. Um so there is that, uh, and then I think the difference uh, for Work's book and Work's argument here uh, is that she 
you know, sort of flips that around in a way and says, well, actually, it's not so much that this is just like reinforcing whatever, you know, capitalist attitudes. Um, what this is doing actually is showing you a world in which those attitudes work. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, because truthfully, what happens in the world is that you can be as mean as you want to. And sure, that might, you know, you can be as mean and, uh, you know, backstabby and, and murderous as much as you want to. But that's not exact. That's not actually how you win capitalism, right? There is there is like a lot of other stuff going on uh, that is going to impact exactly how you're going to exist in the system. Um, and so really what this game is offering is sort of the fantasy of uh, a world in which like the like in which the rules make sense in which you can kind of live this uh transgressive indulgent but also uh weirdly like productive life Mm -hmm. yeah and there's a lot of kind of reading here of the distinction between utopia and dystopia and atopia Mm -hmm. um there and then this kind of uh uh, bringing forward of the heterotopia Mm mm-hmm and I just want to say, right, I've done a lot of research in this. A big, big chunk of my dissertation uh, was talking about dystopia in particular. So I had to read a bunch of this. And like, um, and also later on in the book, there's a note to Cormac McCarthy's The Road that also deals pretty heavily in this. And I, and I want to say, like, I actually think that Wark's understanding of utopia, dystopia, heterotopia are all very different from how basically anyone else talks about these things. Other than Frederick Jameson, I think it's I think a lot of these are coming from, um, a, you know, a detourned reading of Jameson. Um, so, so that's something maybe that's important to know for other readers of the thing. I actually think that Wark's definition of a discussion of heterotopia is very different from, say, Foucault. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that this is a kind of an exploded way of thinking heterotopia in the sense of it is taking it beyond its original use case. And I think you can... I, I'm not saying that to say like, oh, this is bad. You shouldn't do that. But rather, I think it's important maybe to note that um, uh, to do it. I also think there's something really interesting here going on with work seems to hold up this like early 19th or or, or 19th, early 20th century idea that like uh, utopia was once a thing that we could like ascertain and then work toward. And that's impossible now. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't I don't think that's really how utopian literature has ever worked. Um, I think that that is a weird nostalgia for the time before, which is very uncharacteristic for Wark. I I don't think of her as a as a nostalgic writer. But yeah, you know, I thought that was interesting, too, because like, I mean, early modernist, right? Utopia comes out of my period uh, with Mm -hmm. Thomas More in in that way. Um, And this is also tied up sort of within the book, right? Because Thomas More writes the book Utopia, and and yeah. from there it enters the the discussion. Um, but even then, like, it is not clear exactly what it is. More wants you to think about that place. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, based on slavery, uh, you know, fully based on a, uh, a weird privatization of government that that privatizes the military, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is like there there are weird things in Utopia that are very kind of material focused. Mm-hmm. Uh, and kind of like beat by beat political that don't feel aspirational or even like they are beyond the horizon line of politics. Mm-hmm. Like they're just weird things that have occurred like in this weird fake history he's made. Um, so, uh, um, but, but yeah, anyway, I, those were just interesting things I think about the chapter. Chapter six is on res. Mm-hmm. 
it's called battle. So one of the other structuring things here is that the first five chapters all have words that begin with A. The next three chap no, the next Oh yeah. Two chapters two. have something they they both begin with B, and then the final two chapters both begin with C. So uh there. <laughs> I uh, did not notice that at all. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. So uh, I did. Weird. I don't know. That's how my my mind works. And this is mm-hmm. our first B chapter, battle on Res, and this is about uh, targeting. Yeah, um, I, I think this is an interesting chapter because it sets up this interesting relationship. I think the core of the chapter sets up this interesting relationship between time and space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in in the universe that the military entertainment complex is like provided for us. Um, Space is solved in the sense that, like, we have mechanisms now to transcend space in a lot of different ways. And I I think, um, you know, kind of immediately post 9-11, when this is being written, and kind of, you know, post end of history, fall of the the Soviet Union, um, I think you can, you know, uh, globalism won, right? Mm -hmm. In in a sense of of, um, that is the predominant mode of organization of material in the world. I think that's maybe a little bit more complicated now, weirdly enough. But um, I, I think that's the general kind of backdrop for this, right? So space is solved. Don't have to worry about it anymore. We have like a pure topology going on. Um, but what topology can't address is time. Um, time, uh, it, I think we both wrote this quote down, right? Time is the enemy. It's in mm-hmm. 134. Um, and so in res, this kind of reading of res is that um the the mechanical kind of function of res is is pretty easy in the and i mean like easy in the sense of like the game is not difficult and it doesn't have any challenge um but that uh you know pinpoint accuracy is not the point of this game right Mm -hmm. um there's there's a targeting mechanic and kind of a free firing mechanic um you can get yourself in that system fairly easily but you're kind of uh, the thing that is constraining play here is a time limit. Mm-hmm. The thing that's constraining play here is the finitude of the play experience. And so, um, uh, you know, the the battle here is against entropy mm-hmm. and the, the kind of uh, explosion out in the game space, taking this into the larger argument of the book, is that uh, the, the problem of life in the contemporary period is not the finitude of your capacity to connect to things in the universe and your, your, your capacity to do stuff it is that you have a finite amount of time in which to accomplish those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that ultimately becomes a big kind of structuring part of life, right? Um, the, the problem with the American dream is not that it's impossible, right? Because obviously, you know, we see people do it, Michael. The American dream mm-hmm. is obviously attainable. It's that you don't have an infinite amount of time to do it. Right. Right, right. And it just so happens that other people end up in situations that allow them to speed run it in ways that you can't. Exactly. Um, and so this is kind of a, a, you know, a way of talking about the relationship, another way that human beings get uh, a re- a allegorized into game space, right? Of thinking of themselves as existing within um, a rule system, Right, that mm-hmm. that is shown both in the game and in our real life. That that time becomes hugely important. I think this is an interesting chapter all on its own. I don't think it necessarily contributes to the book in a huge amount. I do think it's interesting that uh, on um, uh, there's uh, you know these um, pieces of nostalgia 
that are surprising to me. So this is in 174. She writes, games become less and less a tangible field outside the workaday places of everyday life. Um, and talking that's talking about the kind of development of the military entertainment complex. And I just think like, well, that wasn't ever a thing, right? Like mm-hmm. that they, they were never outside of everyday life. They were always one thing. I mean, this is the CLR James argument mm-hmm. um, that Did you say that was, just because we call it 174. Yeah, one seventy four. Oh, okay. oh, so that's, oh, that's in the next chapter. That's in the next chapter. Yeah, I was, I was like confused because I wasn't finding that in my notes, and I was like, I don't think it goes that far. What's happening? Yeah, yeah, no, that's not. That's just like the, I guess, the next part of the argument uh, mm-hmm. in my head. Sorry. Yeah, that's on one seventy four in, in the next chapter. Which I guess, unless you have anything else to say about battle, we can go ahead and talk about boredom. Yeah, no, 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 boredom on state of emergency. My God, dude, I have not thought about the game state of emergency in like a thousand years well isn't this the second time it's come up in i i think it has but books. like every time i'm like oh my god because it it feels like like that game in my memory right it has it, it's like a it's a goddamn like proust thing right like i think of state of emergency and then i think so clearly like i can remember like the aesthetics of the yeah. moment in time in which that game which is a very weird game came out yeah, I can see, I have a similar kind of sense memory of it. Uh, I don't think I ever played it at the time, because I don't think anyone did. I don't think anyone liked it. I did play um, it. It was boring, which is well, why so it that's, shows up here. <laughs> well, so that's the thing, right, is that it has like two, in my mind, like two associations, right? And and they both show up here. Well, one, sh- one shows up here, I guess. Um, one is exactly what you're talking about, the aesthetic of the moment, right? Like, the the over the jean the over the knee jean short mm-hmm. <laughs> and backwards hat aesthetic of whatever that moment was right it's like listen up everyone we think guy fieri looks cool as hell we're going to turn on this look really really soon but like we think it is cool as hell and you are 13 and you agree you know pull out your chain wallet give me money by state of emergency mm-hmm. and also you're an anarchist <laughs> Yeah, have you ever thought about the fact that Guy Fieri and Fred Durst basically dress the same? Yeah. It's a real, it's a, it's an, an interesting aesthetic consonance. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, uh, but the other thing uh, that I would say too is that I, this game, I don't think we remember it this way, but, but this is how I remember it, right? That this game was really, because it's a Rockstar game. Mm-hmm. was really pushing on trying to, it felt like at the time, trying to create the same kind of moral panic as the Grand Theft Auto games. Yeah. And I mean, it was just a game where you incite riots. Exactly. And so it was kind of courting that. Um, I remember there you know, being magazine features on it that kind of treated it in that way. And as you're saying, those riots are extremely boring because it's just basically a tech demo. Mm-hmm. Um, if you read... Um, Oh, uh, uh, gosh, um, maybe it's Kirsch, uh, tell us about boredom, Michael, and I will come back to this because I need <laughs> to remember the name of the book. Um, yeah, so boredom, boredom comes up here, uh, well, so first off, uh, boredom, in the previous chapter, battle, targeting was what you did, it's, it's like an exteriorization of, of yourself, of your will, of your affect, or whatever, right? It's a, targeting, in, a battle is a way of pointing out into the world, um, and having some sort of effect, right? Even temporarily, even if you're just like shooting at a laser to to blow something up, you have uh, inserted yourself into the world um, and you have come up against something. You have kind of like uh, 
simultaneously challenged and then reaffirmed uh, uh, your own sort of like subjectivity or self or what have you. Um, boredom is what happens uh, when you sort of push yourself out into the world and there's just a void, right? Uh, in, in paragraph 152, in boredom, you open towards something that does not open uh, in return. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the other helpful thing here that work writes 162, um, game and gamer merge in play, quote, games are a repository for a certain atopian labor, which has the power to confront the necessity of its own choosing. So when I am playing a game, how, how I am, you know, taking this, this line, um, I am, I have... I have, like, in battle, right, I, I could just target things constantly all the time. I don't even have to enter a flow state. I am just targeting everything. Um, but with a game, I am taking sort of my my ability to to open into or to exteriorize or insert myself into however we want to, to talk about this. Um, I am pushing some amount of my energy into spelunky 2 right for the next hour i am just going to be playing spelunky 2 over and over and over again and that is atopian labor right that is uh i could have spent that time writing or editing or you know recording a podcast doing any number of things uh but instead i'm just kind of taking uh this labor and almost sublimating it into into the game itself um and as work says, right, the the games uh, as as a repository for this kind of labor, therefore have the power to confront the necessity of its own choosing, which is to say, like, why why sublimate the the labor in this way rather than that way? Why play a boring game rather than a game that is interesting? Uh, and the answer, of course, is that uh, we play games often to alleviate boredom, to to uh, make us feel like. Uh, that we are putting that labor out into something that is at least responding. Uh, but the paradox is that, uh, as she says in 166, the very action of overcoming boredom reproduces it. When gamer and game reach some impasse, there is always a limit. In games, this limit is always given in advance. That's mm -hmm. the very merit of games. So what is attractive about games is that, uh, you know, you are always eventually going to get bored of a game. Maybe not forever. You know, we always have those games that we kind of come back to later. Um, I may go back and play some more Spelunky 1 right after I've gotten bored of Spelunky 2. Uh, but uh, there is... You always go in kind of knowing uh, either, like, I'm going to finish this game and I'm never going to touch it again, or uh, this is one of those games that I kind of run on until I hit the point where I'm like, oh, I need to switch it up. I need something different, right? I need something else that's going to help me kind of, like, discharge uh, uh, this objectless agitation that I have as, as a being that exists in the world. Yeah, I really feel like this is this is an argument that I think can be really easily excised from this book. I don't think you need much of the rest of the book to make this go. Um, and on the other end, I think that this is uh, one of the most like prescient arguments in the book. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the way I, I for some reason I bring up Destiny Two all the time on on the show. I don't even play Destiny Two, but but everyone does, right? So I see a lot of talk about it. And, uh, you know, I have, I have a very good friend who's very into World of Warcraft, and I've played that, uh, you know, a bit on and off. Um, and I play a lot of Magic the Gathering Arena um, currently. 
And what what I would the reason I bring up all three of those games, which are uh, very different, you know, in, in a lot of different ways, is that I think, just to be completely honest, I think that those are games of just transposing boredom, mm-hmm. uh, mean meaning that you're bored in your day to day life, and you are taking that boredom and being bored in a different way. Um, and you know, Destiny Two, I think, is a really good example of if if you trace that community in any kind of way, people do not like bumps in the road in their boredom. Um, and, uh, there's a lot of bumps in the road that uh, it, the, it seems to me the primary content of destiny two is player frustration (laughs) at how the game changes to impact the way that people are just kind of going through the motions of playing it. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to be like mean to that game or mean to the players or, or mean to the, the, the kind of mode, but I think that video games in the 15 years or a little bit less than 15 years since this book came out. I think that video games have figured this out. I think that live service games as a concept are basically just a way of weaponizing boredom in a very particular kind of way uh, in order to get us, you know, pulled into it. And I say that as someone who has, um, let me look, um, six days in Magic the Gathering Arena (laughs) (laughs) over the course of maybe a year and a half or something like that. Um, so right, like that's 100% a game that I go to, to do this exact thing that she's talking about. So, um, uh, yeah, anyway, that's all to say. I think that there are some really kind of pertinent examples right now. I think if someone wanted to write a, uh, essay or a master's thesis or whatever of, of looking at this idea from 2007 and kind of blowing it up and analyzing it in the contemporary period, I think you could find some really interesting ways that game design has hooked toward this. Because you gotta remember too, 2007's pre-mobile revolution in gaming, right? Um, right. You know, I mean, pre-Farmville, so, really. Right. Like the the. I mean, one of the reasons state of emergency is so boring is because it is kind of just like, as you said, it's a tech demo, right? It's like, oh, here is like a space, um, uh, you know, cause like inside a riot, right? Fight against the 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 sort of evil like government or whatever the stupid story of that game was but it's just like you are you are in a mall uh we have hidden some molotov cocktails somewhere go pick those up and then throw them at a storefront and then you throw them at a storefront and all of it's they're populated with npcs in a a grand theft auto kind of way and then Mm -hmm. everyone just panics and runs around and then there are like you know you know cops or whatever uh trying to track you down um but aside from that uh you know it's just it's you like the sole player in this world of teeming uh, NPCs who just don't do anything, and so it it, it feels uh, just sort of empty and pointless. Uh, not to say that like the games you are talking about feel empty and pointless, right? But I think State of Emergency would play very very differently if it came back, say today, and it was something like uh, you and your friends are are like playing like you're sandboxing this, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the in uh, the tech demo kind of thing that I'm saying about that too, I, I had to go look it up. It's from David Kushner's book, Jacked, The Outlaw Story of Grand Theft Auto. Um, you might be familiar with Masters of Doom. In fact, I think probably at some point we'll do Masters of Doom on the show. I think it is mm-hmm. um, well represented enough in, in the world of game studies to, to, to talk about. But um, so Kushner wrote a book that is about, the, you know, kind of the trajectory of Grand Theft Auto, except he he my understanding is he got access to basically no one from that company to talk to him. <laughs> and so it is a very thin it's not a very good book, just to be frank. Um, I think it started with a good idea and, and didn't go very far in that. 
it's actually much more interesting because he does get access to Jack Thompson. And so <laughs> like half of the, the chapters are interviews and just discussions with Jack Thompson and tracing his career alongside of Grand Theft Auto, uh, which is actually pretty fascinating. But uh, basically, he tells a story about state of emergency in that book. That's like, yeah, they just wanted to get something out. They had a tech demo for NPC tech um, and they did that. And that's mm-hmm. what the game is. But that's beside the point. I think the chapter on boredom is very good. Let's talk about our favorite chapter from uh. the book, Michael. I'm saying this sarcastically because I think uh, the conversation on this chapter will be very brief. Chapter eight, complex, on or are complex, depends on how you say it, mm-hmm. on Deus Ex. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not even on Deus Ex. It's on Deus Ex Invisible War. Yeah. Um. That, Which is right out the very gate. This chapter decision. is uh, baiting and switching. No, <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Um, I, can I read something from your notes? Yes. <clears throat> you you write these two things in sequence. Buckle up, Homestuck. It's time for a Grimus square. <laughs> and then talking about this more would require me to internalize lore, and I'm not doing that. <laughs> um. Yeah. Yeah. So this chapter, brilliantly, I've said this multiple times, right? I've said, dang, wouldn't it be great for someone to use a Grimus square here? I've said this on the show several times. And now, monkey's paw time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, we've gotten a Grimus square that is functionally useless. And I say that because this chapter does the most bare bones possible explanation of what is happening in the four endings of deus ex invisible war Mm -hmm. i've never played this game Mm -hmm. i don't understand the story of this game you are not given enough information to understand how the grimace square functions in this chapter in the summaries in the chapter yeah and so i i don't know what i don't know what the argument is yeah, essentially, what what the, 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 what is at stake here, right, is that there are four endings to Deus Ex Invisible War, uh, one for each faction that is in the game. Um, and the Grimus Square is about sort of, you know, taking these, because each faction, of course, has kind of an ideological um, orientation toward the world of the game and the situation and what should be done about the future and all of their, you know, crazy science fiction future technology that they're going to, to come into power with. Um each of these factions has a different perspective on that. And then the Grima Square uh, is about, um, you know, distilling down those those uh, claims or, or ideas and then working them out and finding their uh, their negations or their oppositions and things like that. And, and um, you know, complexifying uh, what seems what might seem to be a, a fairly like distinct, like just here are four opinions. Right. And showing, in fact, mm-hmm. some of them are opposed in ways you might not expect. Some of them are uh, uh, conjoined in ways that you might not expect uh but to make any sense of it at all you have to know more about what these factions want out of the world than is actually given to you so i would have to have gone to the wiki and been like okay so wait a minute these people are doing this and this and and i just like i understand what the chapter is doing but i don't necessarily understand the content (laughs) yeah yeah i mean it's basically um um you know what modes of alignment are are available to a person within this game and then allegorically within game space Mm -hmm. and you need to know a lot about deus ex invisible war to make that make sense um so yeah much like you i get the structure of the argument i i don't there's nuance here that i imagine is probably really great if you understand this game 
Um, but I do not have access to any of that nuance. So, mm-hmm. what about chapter nine conclusions? <laughs> on on Sim, Sim Earth. Earth. Yeah. Uh, this chapter is pretty cool, actually. I like this. Yeah, um, I agree. Uh, because it is about how uh, Sim Earth is, in in many ways, possibly the most depressing game you could ever play. Yeah, no ending to it other than mm-hmm. just turning it off. Yeah, because uh, all you do is you just simulate an Earth. You simulate a planet until uh, everyone dies. I want uh, I want Mackenzie Work to play Mountain. <laughs> yeah no i sorry i didn't (laughs) the end all right so that's the episode Um, (laughs) no but um yeah i I mean basically this chapter is about the possible um outlets or outcomes for thinking about our relationship within game space and Mm -hmm. so um sim earth is a an interesting use case here an interesting kind of game to talk about in relationship for it because as you're saying right it it doesn't really have defined parameters to it in a broad sense it really is just about setting up conditions and then tweaking those right tweaking the the farming capacity or the earth or whatever um in order to see what happens right so Mm -hmm. it's kind of infinitely variable within it but without a defined end other than the earth stops at some point right so you Mm -hmm. destroy the biosphere um, and so it is both, uh, all possibilities within that simulation are comprised within it. And yet it doesn't have, uh, um, any kind of relationship to its outside. You have the really great quote. I didn't write it down, but I also thought it was great. Um, from paragraph 210. Do you want to read that? Uh, game space is just like your PlayStation. It appears to itself as a rigorous game with every action accounted for, and yet it relies on a huge power cord poking out the back that sucks in energy from an elsewhere for which it makes no allowance. And so uh, in in this example, Sim Earth is like Game Space, is like your PlayStation, right? Um, right, like is... Game Space as this thing that we've been talking about as something that is like... Uh, enveloped all all of our reality right every aspect of our lives seems to be bound up in game space uh, and it may seem like that is totality uh but actually right game space is is game space is running off of something under that right which is the world itself our ecology our biosphere uh and mm-hmm. those things are not unlimited <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah in the material production of that thing right or, you know, early in the book somewhere, she writes about, you know, that there's um, uh, there there's nothing in the world that's not marked by, you know, the muck of uh, muck and blood, a hand covered in muck and blood or something. I mean, it's a really great mm-hmm. phrase. I didn't I also didn't write that down for some reason. But, um, you know, that at the at the bottom, at the material production of things like game space and things like our lives, there there are people digging coltan out of the mud you know, right. in a basic way. And, and Frederick Jameson shows up here in the last chapter too to tell us yet again, history is what hurts, right? Um, and and the way that that, what that means, right, is that history is the process of material shifting around often violently and setting parameters on what you're born into and how the world is shaped as you live. Uh, history is the thing um, that that sets material parameters on life uh, and on ontology. Um, and so, uh, 
this is this final chapter is taking the theory of 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 game space and then running it smack into that reality right Mm -hmm. Uh, you know what are then the inputs of game space and what are the outputs that might get us out of it or or transform things Uh, i mean do you have a sense of what the transformation could be uh, beyond game space that's being provided here um i mean personally no but i think you know like one of the one of the quotes here that I think is is important, uh, or at least to me, right, in terms of how I think about things, is uh, from two sixteen. Once all terms are included within the agon of game space, the whole of life becomes a game that can be lost forever, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so, uh, to to some extent, uh, uh, one of the things that I think is important uh, for what you know, my, like what is what is the thing that disrupts game space is. Uh, is the acknowledgement of that finitude, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and sort of like working with that, uh, not just finitude in terms of like material production of game space, um, uh, but thinking, you know, this is this is two thousand seven, so like we're we're getting ready to like speculative realism is going to happen soon, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, thinking about uh, finitude on kind of a cosmological level, uh, and, and uh, you know, uh, Ray Brassier and uh, uh, uh and things like that. Um, so, uh, not to say that, like, speculative realism just offers the solution to game space, um, but it's interesting to see, uh, that kind of thinking of, uh, of finitude, uh, sort of coming up here and, and the ways that it presents kind of, uh, ways of recognizing that the present order of things, uh, is, is not just, like, able to be changed, but is going to change has to change because like there are other things at work right there are limits on 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 things outside of what we can even be conscious of in the moment mm-hmm. all right so here we're gonna do it here okay. ready michael mm-hmm. 222 edited george Lukacs. the military entertainment complex destroyed both the spatio-temporal boundaries between different lands and territories and also the legal partitions between the estates in its topology, there is a formal equality for all gamers. The economic relations which directly determine the metabolic exchange between men and nature progressively disappear. Man becomes, in the true sense, a gamer being. Game space becomes the reality for man. Thus, the recognition that game space's reality becomes possible only under the military entertainment complex in topology. But the military entertainment complex which carried out this revolution did so without consciousness of its own function. The agonistic forces it unleashed, the very forces that carried it to supremacy, seemed to be opposed to it like a second nature, but a more soulless, impenetrable nature than topography ever was. So I guess the the, the kind of question here, the, the, I, I think that we have done a good job of reading the first six sevenths of, of, of this <laughs> thing right but it's the end here that i think that that you know we're trying to answer or trying to talk about right um um the you know the agonistic forces it unleashed the mep the very mm-hmm. forces that carried it to supremacy seem to be opposed to it like a second nature but a more soulless and penetrable nature than topography ever was and so i mean to me i read that as as um, the military entertainment complex has produced game space, but game space gives us tools ultimately 
to participate in a system of agonistic struggle against it. Mm -hmm. However, I don't know what that looks like because I don't think it's, it's not state of emergency and it's not deus ex and it's not sim earth, right? Which is like this absolute nihilism. I guess unless absolute nihilism is a politics, which I guess it is, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just kind of a bummer. Well, and earlier in, in 214, she says, you know, survival has no positive value. And this is about Sim Earth. Game mm-hmm. space is pure nihilism. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I don't know if like, you know, we should come away with this. Like, let's all be nihilists. Right. I think there is an opposition being set up here. But like you, uh, I don't necessarily know uh, what to do beyond the recognition of of the the limits that have been sort of set up or sort of the, these ideas um and that's sort of that's again right sort of the the issue that we had maybe even the last episode is once what what is to be done mm-hmm. i wonder if someone's ever asked that question i don't know <sighs> I'm, I'm thinking um i'm I'm like 85% sure that that was uh, in the pilot for Howdy Doody. Okay. That, little, that weird little puppet guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think he... Howdy I Doody and his asked. famous question, what is to be done? I'm pretty sure that's him. Uh-huh. Um, and that's why people love to collect that puppet. <laughs> oh, no, I'm wrong. I'm 100% wrong. I'm so sorry. Uh, what is to be done actually comes from that story that David Lynch talks about finding those Woody Woodpecker dolls when he's driving <laughs> by that gas station. Yeah. That's what those dolls, that's the, they came with a little sign that said, uh, what is to be done? <laughs> um, but yeah, and I think that what you're saying here too kind of like uh, leads into the very last sentence of the book, right? Gamer theory calls for concepts that make the now rather familiar world of the digital game strange again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, I don't know if these come, you know, I, I, it seems like this whole book is setting up, uh, a way that these games offer us perspectives, right. On, on how we are allegoricized into game space, right. How, how the games make us think the world we're in, which is actually very helpful. I'm not, I'm in no way criticizing that, uh, function of the book. I think it does a very good job of demonstrating how the basic mechanisms of game, control our lives. And and something we didn't really say to begin with uh, is that the first chapter is maybe a little bit too playful with this, but it's very playful with uh, using the terms that we use in day-to-day life that uh, that are game words that Mm -hmm. talk about economic relationships or whatever. Um, So, so, you know, there's a a close attention to how the very language, the discourse that we use day-to-day is mediated by uh, or, or, or or depends on game metaphors, game allegories, and things like that. Um, but yeah, I I don't th- I, I don't think the book does the thing that it says it's doing, which is like giving us ways of using games to think the world more strangely. Um, I think it's just giving us ways of thinking the world. Hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe you feel differently, but I th- there's like a there's a disjunction for me between like what the book says it did and then what it did for me. Yeah, I I think um I think I agree with you, but also I think for me it's somewhat mitigated by the fact that this book is like 13 years old, and in some sense, like any any book, it is trying to call some shots, and uh in it, it consigns itself to history in that way, right? Some of these things are going to land, um, and some of them don't so i think for instance uh the 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 uh 
way that the book impels you to think of things as allegory rather than representation, I still think that's very useful, especially because uh, our, our discourse is so much dominated by uh, representation and sort of the ethics of representation. Um, that allegory to me is like, you know, a, an interesting and weirder way of engaging with uh, game objects than I think is sort of commonly accepted. And not just, you know, allegory in, in, a, in the traditional sense, but this very particular uh, form of allegory that that work is is pulling out of, you know, Benjamin and everything. Yes. Um, unfortunately, I'm here to report that I'm working on a piece that is critiquing the very use of allegory <laughs> as, it, <laughs> as it functions in uh, game studies. Um, uh, so may, people can maybe be on the lookout for that, although it might be a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but I, I'm certainly thinking about it. I thought, I thought it was really useful to, to read again. Um, uh, Michael, do you think people should read this book? I mean, yes, absolutely. Um, and I think, and this is not even me. I think the book does not even necessarily expect you to read the whole thing. Right. Yeah, I, I, I think this book expects. I think this book, even it, it in some ways, right, it models like this is why it is a topology, right? And in, in what I was talking about, the, the database, this is why there are no page numbers. This is why it's just paragraphs, right? This is why it's so epigrammatic is that I think work is expecting you to come in and have the parts that you're really into and then kind of skip and dash and move around. Um, and so, uh, you know, if this whole book, right, if you found like a couple of things in it that uh, seemed to speak to you or that seemed really interesting to you based on like the conversation that we've just had, um, I think the book is fulfilling its purpose as far as work is concerned. Like not to sort of, you know, make too many assumptions about what her project was here, put words in her mouth. Um, But in some ways, like I think that uh, she can't not have written this knowing kind of the the relationship with the reader that the structure was kind of going to, to facilitate, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and I, th- I believe you can get this book online for free still. I, I didn't check that out, but I believe it's still, you know, hosted at the future of the book uh, thing. And you can still read it. At least that was the case a few years ago. Um, uh, and by a few years ago, I mean like a couple years ago, the last time I looked. Um, mm-hmm. But we can figure that out. We'll post it on um, Twitter if that is the case. Well, we uh, we haven't talked about what the next book would be. We have not. What? What about? Uh, I'm going to say. I'm going to say this. Let's let's uh, let's take a little swing here. Okay. What about uh, Kashana Gray's book, Intersectional Tech? Oh, okay. I would I I would be down with that. Let us read Kashana Gray's Intersectional Tech. It uh, just came out. Well, recently came out a couple months ago. Uh, it's exciting. I'm about to teach it, so that will be very convenient for me. We're about to teach teach a piece of it, um, and so uh, so yeah. Let let's do that. Let's uh, let's get out of the. Um, you know, we've had this really interesting, weird direct connection over the past three or four books, and let let's break a little bit and uh, go with a, a new book that I'm excited to read, and I think uh, you know I think you're excited to read too, Michael. Um, where can they find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter.com and search the database for all my excellent old tweets and none of my really bad recent tweets, uh, at Warren is dead. If you like this show, you can go to Patreon.com slash Ranged Touch. The description, or no, the link is down in the description below. Uh, you can support us for as little as a dollar a month. You get access to a newsletter. At $3 a month, you get access to the notes for this show. 
um, and uh, we we upload those, put them in a, put them in the thing, and uh, you can check out the PDF and see what we did. Um, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that always shows up in our notes that just doesn't show up in the book or doesn't show up in the episode due to um, you know the finitude of time and space. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, so you can check that out. And at five dollars a month, you get access to the Range Touch monthly podcast, where Danny and I are just kind of talking about whatever we did for the month, and uh, also to bonus episodes of our other show, Just King Things, um, where uh, uh, we talk about media objects that are made by Stephen King. And then Just King Things itself, the podcast, which is free, um, uh, we are talking about Stephen King and publication order. Uh, we just did the Bachman book Rage, and the next book we're doing... No, I'm sorry. We just did... When is this coming out? We just did the Bachman book Rage, and yeah. the next episode that'll be coming out after you hear this will be on uh, Night Shift, Stephen King's first book of short stories. If you like that book of short stories, uh, you should sh- come check it out. And if you like Game Study Study Buddies in a general sense, you probably will like Just King Things. Um, it's us doing a similar kind of... Big old comprehensive project. Um, we also have Too Much Future, our show about uh, the Fallout games, where we play the games, the Fallout games in uh, in order, and then we talk about them kind of critically and uh, um, in other ways, sillily, allegorically. <laughs> I don't know. All of that can be found nostalgically, exactly, anti-nostalgically. Uh, all information about all of these things can be found at rangedtouch.com. And uh, you should go to youtube.com slash range touch in order to see all the other stuff that we're doing, such as the Elsinore Let's Play that we've been going through. Um, and one of the creators of the game has said is, quote, good. Yes. End quote. <laughs> That's the end of this episode. Uh, we'll be back next month with uh, Intersectional Tech. See you then. Uh, until next time, <laughs> remember, folks, that the social is predicated upon its exclusions. <laughs>